Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey back to the 80s, my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, there was a time for this law, but not anymore. See, this is our time to dance. It is our way of celebrating life. It's the way it was in the beginning. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it should be now. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing the 1984 teen drama Footloose, starring Kevin Bacon, Laurie Singer, and John Lithgow. Directed by Herbert Ross, this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 47 minutes. It was nominated for two Academy Awards, both in the Best Music Original Song category. One for the title song Footloose, which was sung by Kenny Loggins, and the other Let's Hear It for the Boy, sung by Denise Williams. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Footloose jumps with spirit, dazzling dance numbers, and an electrifying musical score. Five sizzling hit songs in the tradition of flash dance. It portrays the timeless struggle between innocent pleasure and rigid morality when city boy Ren McCormick, Kevin Bacon, finds himself in an uptight Midwestern town where dancing, and therefore all youthful joy, has been banned. Ren revolts with best friend Willard, Chris Penn, and the minister's daughter, Lori Singer. A treasury of top ten songs, Kenny Loggins' Footloose, Shalimar's Dancing in the Sheets, Denise Williams' Let's Hear It for the Boy, Bonnie Tyler's Holding Out for a Hero, and the Footloose love theme, Almost Paradise. One kid, one town, one chance. Footloose. Bill Bant. So now, now, I gotta cut loose. Footloose. I'm, I'm going to kick off the Sunday shoes. Please, Louise, pull me off my knees. Jack, get back. Come on, before we crack, lose your blues. Everybody, cut foot loose. Oh, we're doing this. Yes, we are. It's funny, Bill, because I, I, really, I did the opening quote and I was like, wow, that was really dramatic. That's kind of a little, little too heavy for, for this. This is, let's cut a rug, man. Let's live it up. This is lighthearted. Let's have some fun. So that was uh, what's on the box from Footloose. And uh, let's move on to our earliest memories. What is our earliest memories of Footloose? Jason, as always, start us off. Hey, man, along with my sister, I had just begun my dancing career. Gosh, this is now, I was, what, 11, 12 years old here? Uh, 10 or 11, I guess. And this comes out in 1984. Uh, so I should say I, I was in the actually latter stages of my career. I misspoke because I began dancing for the Kim Calla Dance Studio in Lake Villa, Illinois, around age five or six. So the bottom line is a film like this that had dancing as its primary focus and put a modern and positive light on the dancing made myself and my sister and the Kim Calla Dance Studio quick fans at a young age. So needless to say, my family and myself went to see this in the theater. The idea that a guy who can dance is at the center of this movie and made it popular was a big deal for me personally. I've expressed this on 
podcasts previously. We did Dirty Dancing, obviously, which was uh, released a few years after this in 87, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, but this came before uh, we'd had Flashdance, which was Jennifer Beals, which she's wonderful. But here we have a guy at the center of it. And for me as a young boy uh, amongst a dance troupe of ladies, it's like, yeah, uh, I can do this. Uh, look at this guy. He's doing it. He's he's popular. He's doing it right. Uh, he's talented and being appreciated. And I can do that, too. Uh, there's nothing to be afraid of, or there's no stigma attached to it. And I don't gave me some confidence. So I give a lot of credit to this movie and Footloose for uh, building up my confidence as a young dancer. Another early memory for me, man, Kevin Bacon's blowing off steam dance fight, punching dance montage at the steel mill. <laughs> yes. That's always bad. I, w- I like wanted a- to ask you about that. I'm like, Jason, would that be something you would do when you would get upset? You would just dance around your house to blow off some steam? Oh, sure. Sure. Just punch the air like crazy. Okay. You know, smoking a cigarette, pounding a beer, just throwing it against the wall in my house at 11 years old. That's what I did. Yeah. yeah. Just- <laughs> I, know, I, was, I was talking about that. I was like, oh, man, this was now. I'd probably be dancing around my house all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, you know, so, but that is definitely an early memory from this movie. That's one of the, the now probably more like cult classic or iconic scenes from this film. And I only say like cult classic in the way, because it's a little cheesy at this point. We may talk about that later. It's a little dated, but it's still fun. The music's rocking and Kevin Bacon's going for it. Uh, not only Kevin Bacon, but all of his stunt doubles. Correct. So I remember as a kid now, because I'm paying attention now, closely to the actual dance choreography because I was a dancer myself at that age when I found out that it wasn't Kevin Baking Bacon Kevin Baking that it wasn't Kevin Baking in the scene Mm. it bothered me a little bit I was like oh he's not doing his own dancing now to his credit he did a lot of dancing later on in the movie etc in certain scenes and you can see clearly even in this scene at the steel mill he is doing some of the dancing you know uh, and you can see it in the close-ups and certain shots I actually took a little issue that he had these stuff people doing it, but of course he did. Of course he did. Uh, so I no longer take issue with Kevin Bacon's uh, or his stuff people, but I knew, yeah, that I had mentioned, yeah, Flashdance was the year before, you know, we were making light of that whole, that uh, emphatic getting blowing off steam, like the whole, it's like a dance fight sort of thing that he's doing just really just like, Uh, getting out the aggression, releasing that sort of aggression, frustration, the teen angst, all of that coming out. And it's kind of funny, but I get it. And I have to put this out there right now. There is an amazing homage sequence in the film Hot Rod starring Andy Samberg, where I believe they might actually use the same music, but it's a direct homage to this sequence in Footloose. And it's hilarious. Look it up on YouTube. Andy Samberg and Rod, Hot Rod. Look up the uh, the fight, the, the punching dance sequence. I promise you'll feel better afterward. afterward. Uh, anyway, so that uh, dance sequence at the steel mill, definitely an early memory. Another one would be uh, all of the scenes, or I should say the montage, uh, where Ren, Kevin Bacon, teaches Chris Penn, Willard, how to dance. I mean getting Chris Penn to, to find some rhythm 
that was always hilarious to me as a kid. Chris Penn in that scene, just really having trouble finding finding the beat. So that was always memorable. Definitely the entire sequence where they're playing chicken with the tractors and Ren's shoelace getting caught. Man, John Lithgow is great in this movie as the righteous and majorly dickish reverend. Although I kind of have a different take on him now. I may get into that a little bit in my initial thoughts, but I remember, you know, when I'm just thinking about my early memories or when I think upon this, I'm like, yeah, John Lithgow, man, he was hardcore as Reverend Shaw, Reverend Shaw Moore in this, but he's great. Uh, so I always remember his character, Kevin Bacon's big speech at the town hall meeting, addressing the town council, quoting the Bible, a young Sarah Jessica Parker's in this. I remember she's so cute. And of course the big dance finale, the, uh, the prom and a uh, little break dancing in that sequence too, which I was a big fan of at 10 or 11 years old and throughout grade school. I mean, that's when breakdancing was huge. And just that there's a kid that does a little breakdancing at the end in the finale was a big deal to me when I was watching this. And that's always something I remember from that finale of this film is how like, man, that guy was just like Gumby out there. No, he's doing some serious pop in there. That's right. Pop and lock, man. The music, rock and roll soundtrack. You'd mentioned the nomination at the Academy Award. When uh, you said you Footloose won for best original song. No, just nominated. Just nominated. Okay. Was uh, Stevie Wonder one that year for um, Woman in Red? Aha. Kenny Loggins. He was owning the 80s. What a run oh, for, yeah. for the Loggins, man. Everything from Caddyshack to Footloose to Top Gun, right? I mean, the Danger Zone. Uh, yeah, good stuff. So this soundtrack I would listen to at Infinitum. Uh, you mentioned that there's the, all the tunes that's here for the boy holding out for a hero. You know, funny enough, here's an early memory for you. That song holding out for a hero was always that just like, let's get pumped. Let's get, let's go. Let's mm-hmm. like, it's go time. And I'd hear that song. Then I just recalled my mom was such a big fan of the soap opera days of our lives as I was growing up. And for all of you days of our lives fans out there, there's a wonderful sequence. There's like the everlasting and ongoing love story between Bo and Hope, which were two main characters on the show. And there was a great sequence where, you know how, like, you know, all of soap opera mostly is shot on a stage, right? Soundstage. Right. And you can tell just by how it's lit and things like that. But every once in a while in soap opera, they'll do exteriors or an exterior scene. And it's so, it contrasts. Yes, the, the actual soundstage stuff that they shoot. And it's just awkward. It's like, what are these soap stars doing out on, on the street? Yeah, in real the life? real it's world. Weird. Yeah. yeah it's like, <laughs> Should be looking up the sun like, ah. <laughs> but there was a, that's hilarious. Days of Our Lives episode where Bo is, of course, having to go save Hope or rescue her or go be with her for some reason. And it's all about the romance. And of course, he's on some like a Harley of some kind, just cruising down the road. And of course, holding out for a hero is playing and rocking in the background. And I remember watching that as a kid going, yeah, go get her, Bo. Do it, man. You are a hero. So the soundtrack to this always gets me going. And that's always an early memory, a great early memory. I've always been fond of this movie. What are your early memories, Bill Bant? Yeah, for me, it would be the music. Um, it took me a while to go see this movie because that wasn't a movie at my age that was in my wheelhouse. 
So I was like, oh, okay, a bunch of dancing stuff. I don't really want to see it. But I mean, you would hear all the songs on the radio all the time. So it was always around. And the songs stayed around the 80s for a long, long time. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I'll be honest, the first movie that got me that with Kevin Bacon was Quicksilver. That was Mm -hmm. the one because that used to be on cable all the time. Used to watch it all the time. And then eventually it was one of those. All right, I got to watch his other movies and I got to watch Footloose. And then I finally did. It was probably not until I got to high school that I finally did watch it. And um, another fish out of water story. Here he comes from the big city into this small town. And it's just all these crazy rules that you're just like, how do you not have dancing? Or how do you not have rock and roll? And how do you enforce that? And why, why is he there? And him just trying to struggle to get the courage to try to get a dance going on. And and you kind of mentioned this too, like as a kid, you see John Lithgow as you know the bad guy. Oh, extremely overbearing and just right. so strict and just over, yeah. Like yeah. and then watching it now, you're like, okay, I kind of see what he was trying to do, but he just took it too far. So that was kind of interesting watching it this time, just like, yeah, okay, I can kind of see it from his side. Whereas as a kid, no way. It was just like, how, how do you stop? Oh, you think he's insane? Yeah. Yeah, you just think he's crazy, mm-hmm. that he's almost possessed by his, yeah, this whole, by the church and by, his, you know, he's just preaching and, and just, he's extreme. You just think of him as just being way, way over the top, you know, from a kid's perspective. Right, and I could see it too, because going to Catholic school that, I was almost like, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by John Lithgow. I'm always hearing this Bible beating, you know, do good. All this is evil. If you do this or that, you're going to hell. And it's like, come on, man. All right. You got to, you know, you got to live your life a little bit. And all this stuff isn't exactly what you think. And yeah, I I really enjoyed it. And like I said, it's just the soundtrack just stands out. I mean, you still hear Footloose today or whatever event and people are out there dancing. Absolutely. Like crazy. It doesn't matter what age they are. It's That song definitely has a beat that just gets right into you and, and, and out on the floor. So, yeah, it was a fun movie. This is definitely a good one to go back and, and rewatch. It's been a while. So I certainly enjoyed it. The song Footloose and how it has held up over the years. That song, man, I, I get inspired. It's, it's still so catchy. And it makes you want to dance. Kenny Loggins, man, he knew what he was doing. He nailed it. Oh, yeah. He's so, cranking him out then. Yeah, for sure. Uh, feel good song. So it's now, you know, there was then and it's now. So I have some initial thoughts now upon okay. revisiting Footloose from the year 1984. This is definitely some good 80s dated cheese with fun and a lot of heart, man. I still love it. I think some of it. If not, most of it holds up here and there. Like I said, you know, there's some cheese for sure. Some of it's a bit dated, but it's great. I mean, get a lot of cassette tapes in this, which is awesome. Yes. Uh, some great hair. Uh, here's an initial thought. You knew, you know, the film takes place in the Midwest when the main characters' names are Wren, Shaw, Willard, Rusty, Woody, Wendy Joe, Ethel, Chuck, and Wes. Yes. Those are some, some if not most of the names of our protagonists and or antagonists, depending on your perspective. Yeah, man. You know, God, John Lithgow is Reverend Shaw. We'll probably talk a little bit more about him because the differing perspective from the then and now, 
I saw him now as he was a lot calmer in moments, especially in like the first half of the moment. You, you, when you first see him, he's impressive when he's doing his preaching. He's preaching the gospel and he, it's like fire and brimstone and he's doing his thing. And he, I buy it. He is a preacher. He is going full bore. But then even when his daughter Ariel is a little bit uh, of the rebellious type and just kind of going against what he's preaching and what he's trying to instill in her and what he's teaching, uh, he's still approaching her with a calm demeanor. He just, he really is a stout uh, or devout believer in what he is preaching and teaching, but he's not, he's not mean. He's not like ruthless. He's not, he's not a bad person. He's not evil. He's not mistreating his daughter. It's just, he's trying to explain to her why he, is thinks he is right in what he says and what he's doing and what he's trying to, to, you know, these lessons he's trying to instill in the town and the town's people and the children and the kids. So were you going to say something, Bill? Uh, That was a good point too. You were expecting more like, like fire and brimstone towards the town. He's not really like that. He does have kind of a gentle approach. I mean, right. He's believes in what he believes in. And, you know, he's going to fight for what he believes in, but he's not, there's not an angry approach to it that you would usually expect or pigeonhole preachers being depicted on film as. So that, I did kind of find that shocking. Yeah, it's just something I had forgotten from viewing it as a kid. Like, I just thought him of him as the bad guy. Right. And now I watch it and you have an understanding a little bit more from an adult perspective, maybe as a parent as well, that he is trying to protect the children. He's trying to protect the kids. He's trying to do right by them, and especially his own daughter. And then, of course, you learn that there was a tragedy that also has affected his decision-making and why he believes the things he's believing, why he is a bit bit overprotective and a bit uh, going over the top or extreme, maybe, in his beliefs. So it's one thing, like, we see him uh, preaching and performing for the congregation when he's really in his uh, element in front of the people, you know, preaching from the pulpit. But when he's at home, he's pretty, he's got a calm, quiet demeanor. But John Lithgow is just a wonderful actor. He's just, and he's got such great presence and can turn it on and off when he wants to be intimidating and then very gentle in other moments. So I just appreciated him a lot more upon this uh, revisit. Speaking of that opening sequence, when he is doing, putting on the performance and he's preaching, then we see a lot of the townsfolk sitting in the pews and we see Ren McCormick played by Kevin Bacon. And we see Ariel played by Laurie Singer and Sarah Jessica Parker as Rusty. And they're kind of looking across the way and they see that Ren's the new kid in town and they think he's cute and they're smiling back and forth, et cetera. But my favorite moment is when they focus on the little kid in the pew in the church who is asleep. Yes. And he's like sweating because it's clearly hot. Reverend's up there sweating too. John Lithgow's like sweating bullets up there, but the little kid's like passed out. And I think one of his parents like wakes him up and he's all bothered and confused. That was me. That was me. I could relate to that kid. That's who I related to. Because I, now you went to Catholic high school, but I went to two different Catholic grade schools and would go to church twice a week and sat in the pews. And I, you know, sit, stand, kneel, sit, stand, kneel go through the Psalms, go through the thing, the homily, the which uh, homily was my actually favorite part because the father would uh, kind of go off script, tell a story maybe. But anyway, um, I just related to that kid, thought that was funny. 
Yes. My wife did ask me in that scene. She's like, was that you as a kid? I'm like, pretty much. <laughs> right. And you just don't understand any of it. No, you just, it doesn't, it doesn't translate. No, so yeah. So other initial thoughts, you know, I thought it was funny outside of obviously the music is dated and some of the lingo, I think Ren at one point says when they tell him, yeah, oh yeah, no dancing is outlawed in this town. And he says, jump back. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. All right. I got totally it. Yeah. Uh, but it's funny how films that take place or uh, are located in the country don't feel terribly dated because the fashion never changes. Like it's always, oh, you, yeah. go, you know, Outside it's like of- country, country Western. It's usually, it's a lot of flannel. It's a lot of jeans. It's a lot of cowboy boots, blue yeah. collar workers. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, the, that that aspect isn't uh outside of Ren, because I was like, oh, when are we bringing skinny ties back? I miss skinny ties. Oh, totally. <laughs> uh, love that stuff. Yeah, Kevin Bacon, man. Oh, we see a young Kevin Bacon in this. Good looking kid. He has a unique look, man. I don't know why. It just kind of, you know, when you've got a lot of other, and we'll talk about this probably in fun facts and trivia, but you talk about the young stars at the time in the early 80s and Kevin Bacon definitely would stand out in that way. Just he just looks unique. He looks he's different. He's not he's clearly a, a handsome guy, uh, but he's got a little bit of a different look, a standout look versus your traditional leading man, square jawed type of hero, I guess. So I thought that was cool. I'm just glad that they cast him in this because he was a little bit he he's leading man, but slightly offbeat, I guess. Yeah. And you can't yeah. beat that hair. Great hair, man. Awesome. Kevin Bacon still has it too. Talk about a head of lettuce, man. Hey, man, I would have totally gone for Rusty in high school. I don't know, man. Sarah Jessica Parker, I thought she was adorable in this. I think she's very attractive in this. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned all the time, I have a thing for girls with kind of the more masculine at the guy's names. Right. Rusty, right? Although I don't know if Rusty's Greatest name for a girl? Anyway, I can relate to wanting to get out of the small town. you wanting that excitement, the feel of the energy buzzing all about in the city or, or a university or stuff that like, that's who I was. That's why, you know, upon rewatch, I'm just looking at going, yeah, I totally relate to this. And that's because that's who I was as a kid growing up in a small town of 7,000 people and wanting to get out and see the world. And that's why you know, part of the reason why I went to the University of Miami in Florida. I'm going to go thousands of miles away. I'm going to get the hell out and see what else is out there and see what South Beach is like. I mean, but if I'm really being honest, I only went to the University of Miami because that's where Miami Vice took place in Miami. That's really <laughs> the reason. Let's just be, I got to be honest here. I got to be transparent, candid here. Um, so, yeah. And the funny thing is, Bill, now is that it all comes around full circle where all I want at this point in my life is to go back to the small town and find <laughs> some, some uh, serenity and peace and quiet. That's just the cycle of life, I suppose. Uh, this is one fun thing. I uh, initial thought I had at one point, Ariel is now become infatuated with Ren and he comes, she comes to the steel mill and kind of interrupts the end of his uh, dance montage sequence. Yes. And 
he says, no, I, well, I'm not getting with you because if I do, your boyfriend would remove my lungs with a spoon. Right. I'm like, wait a minute. Where have I heard that before? Yeah, and later on, thing. I'm like, wait, did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, rip this off? I thought I was thinking the same think thing. Yep. Because it, it would hurt more. Right. Because <laughs> Alan Rickman, the wonderful Alan Rickman, who plays the sheriff of Nottingham in that film, uh, says, Loxley, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. I'm like, wait a minute, did they steal that from Footloose? It's possible. Yeah. I forgot that Ariel really, I mean, she's clearly rebellious in this, but she seems to have a death wish, man. That girl's Early. trouble. Yeah. Like, what is she doing? For those of you, I'm assuming, whom have are listening to this podcast because they've probably seen Footloose and know the film well. But there are a couple of scenes where she has kind of a near-death experiences that well, situations she puts herself in. One where she's straddling between two moving vehicles and another where she's standing in front of an oncoming train. I just, that kind of hit me this time around. It's like, boy, this girl's got some real issues. This will be my last initial thought or second to last is that from a story structure point of view, it's interesting watching these movies from the 80s, Bill Band, because we had done Back to the Future recently, which is a two-hour film. A lot of our favorite films from the 80s managed to clock in under two hours. Uh, which this is one of those films. And I was watching the beginning of this and I was a little critical. I was like, wow, they're really getting to certain things fast where it wasn't a lot of relationship development. Or it was like, wow, Ren made some friends really quick. Rusty calls him over to the lunch table at the cafeteria and all of a sudden they're all besties because then when you see the, the chicken tractor sequence, he's teamed up with these guys. I'm like, didn't he just arrive like yesterday? Yeah, there is kind of a weird timeline in this movie. I couldn't figure it out. Thank you. Yeah, it was kind of like, wow, things are happening really quickly, but then they aren't, but then they are. And I'm like, how? And then I just have a newfound respect for telling a story as far as regarding a feature film in under two hours. It's harder than you would think. Back to the Future does it perfectly. And you can do it well, you can do it poorly, regardless, it can be done. It's just, I have a newfound respect for it because I still enjoy this film, but sometimes in a story, you've got to pick and choose your battles. There's just things that you go, do I really need a lot of character background here? Or do I need to explain this? Do I need to tell more of Ren and his mother's backstory? Why did they leave Chicago? What happened with the situation with his father or Do we need more information about what happened with Ariel's brother when he passed away uh, in the tragic accident and how that pain has affected their family? Things like that, because we think about that, right, Bill, as as writers, we think about character backstory and and, and delving into uh, relationships and things like that and filling it out, which we can do now. We're now seeing in television series and why TV series have become more popular. And that medium is really caught on because you have the time to deal with that. And people become really emotionally invested in these relationships. But I'm watching these 80s films now as we do this podcast, like, man, they really kind of skim over some of this stuff, you know, just to get to it, because we got to get to the next scene. We only got so much time. Versus even now, when you see not just the television series that have eight to 10 to whatever number of episodes per season, and the time to deal with all the relationships and backstory, et cetera, to fill it all out, movies are longer now, too. And it's just, I have a new respect for the two-hour movie from the 80s. That's all I'm saying. Lastly, I'll say, I love a small-town movie. It makes me nostalgic 
for Lindenhurst, Illinois. Man, Utah County, Utah is where they shot a great deal of this movie. Beautiful location. So I'm a fan. I'm a sucker for a small town movie. Did you have uh, some initial thoughts? Yeah, I've just touched on what you're talking about being the under two hours because I would have loved to see how the conversation between Ren and the Reverend played out. I am like, you can't see at home, ladies and gentlemen, but I am applauding Bill Bant right now because I put that down in my notes. Oh, okay. Specifically wrote, I wanted more from that scene. I would have loved to have seen that conversation. Yeah, because I would have liked to see maybe the Reverend sees his son in Ren or something like that. Or That's just, a good call. Just, yeah. Or just describing how him and his daughter through all this have, have been breaking apart. And I, I really thought there was, that really stood out to me watching this. I was like, oh, that was such a missed opportunity there. Where did that end up on the cutting room floor somewhere? Where, where is that? I, I really want to know more of that conversation. Because in that third act, the, you know, the reverend starts, not that he approves dancing in the town, but at least he allows them to do the dance at the end. Mm-hmm. And he's a little more open to letting people express themselves. And he needs to learn that he can't control everything. People need to make their own decisions. Yes, you can present them the facts per se or, you know, what the situations are, but you have to let the people decide for themselves. And I right. think that's when, you know, because they, they had the whole thing with the book burning and he's kind of like, whoa, 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 what? why are you deciding to burn these books? What makes you think you burn this book? You fired a teacher at the school because they were, he was teaching a book and you didn't even give him a chance to defend himself. Who are you to make these judgments? Satan isn't in these books. He's right. in your heart. Yeah. And I think he starts seeing that more and more as, as the movie comes. And I, I really wish there was a culmination of that in that scene with Ren and the Reverend in the house when Ren's going to ask Ariel to the prom. And that that I was like, oh, that was like, oh, I put in the extra five or six minutes. I want to see that scene. That was like my big initial thought. And then just, yeah, just Ariel. I was like, I would so stay away from that girl. I'm just like, Ren. <laughs> There's some other cute girls there in the school. Go, go, go chase them first. I'm going to touch on that. I think a little bit here coming up probably, Um, but I'm going to skip to one of my complaints because it's going to go right back to exactly what you were talking about with the scene between Ren and the Reverend Shaw. I felt like we, when that scene begins, it feels like the end of the scene. Right. Like we, I thought I'd miss something that happens a few times in this movie. And I'll probably cover that in my other complaints where I'm like, whoa, did I miss something? Am I watching an edited version of this somehow for some reason? (laughs) So when that scene began, I'm like, oh, wait, this is the end of the scene. What happened to the first three quarters of the scene? Yeah. And the scene could be is is loaded. It's inherently it. There's so much built into this scene. Like you said, like he's Ren coming over to ask Ariel to the prom having to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with a preacher, a man of faith, a man of religion, someone who can would be an authority figure or someone who could be intimidating, especially is you just like this new kid on the block and you're trying to, you know, woo this man's daughter. I mean, it's an intimidating situation to be in. So you have all those circumstances, not to say that already you're on this guy's bad side. 
you've developed a re- reputation in a short period of time of being a troublemaker and being the exact opposite of everything this preacher is talking about, trying to teach these people, you know, I, anyway. And then. To, yeah, because, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, jump no, in. No, because man. it also yeah. gets set up with Andy when he's giving his business. He's like, you guys could do the dance, basically do the dance here because it's not in the district but you need to convince the reverend. So he's, so it's almost like pushing you towards that. Like they're going to have a conversation because Ray has already spoken in front of the council and the council has shot him down. Correct. So he's got to do something. He's going to make a one-on-one plea. Right. But we don't see the one-on-one. Yeah. And we don't see the one-on-one plea. No. But, and the thing is you would imagine in your mind's eye uh, and in your heart as a writer that the, whole scene kind of develops and there would, there's a great deal of tension built into the scene, but it would start off with a conversation about obviously having the dance, what it mean, would mean to the town, what it mean to the teenagers and the kids at the school. But then it comes down to the one-on-one and what is really personal to them. And that's the scene we get in this movie because it comes, and I wrote this down because they both have suffered loss in their life. Ren's father left his family, just walked out on Right. And he thought it was his fault. And he's been trying to prove himself since like that he's worthy and that he has purpose and that there's, that he can make a difference. And from Reverend Shaw's perspective, he's lost a son and that's, you know, no parent should ever have to endure that sort of loss and or pain. And so they both, connect on that that's where they connect and relate to one another and that's what we see but it doesn't we're like what was the lead up to that to make that moment all that more impactful and that line there which i think gets a little lost because we didn't see the lead up to it is you have ren looking at a photograph of the brother whom they lost to young and ren says Sometimes things don't make any sense. You know, if you can explain to me about my father, maybe I can explain to you about your son, but it doesn't make any sense. Great lines. Yeah. Just great. Like that's good writing because it's so it's brilliant in its simplicity. He's just saying it doesn't make any sense. Can you explain to me why my father left? I can't explain to you why your son was taken from you too soon. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. And yeah, that's so it. truthful. Yeah, so truthful. But it gets a little lost. And so that I put that in my complaints. It was like that scene should have been longer. So great call, Bill. Great call to point that out right off the bat. Yeah, let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments for Footloose? You start us off. Okay, so mine's a moment. Um, and I just kind of remember when I first saw this, this scene always kind of stood out for me where Ren and Willard are in the car together and, you know, Ren's really finding out all about the, all the stuff they're prohibited from doing in the town. And there's like, there's just a quick moment and Ren and Willard are in the car and Ren's asking him about music. And I just love this exchange. He's like, you like men at work? Oh, it's great. Yeah. And Willard's like, which man? Men at work. Well, where do do. they work? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, they don't. They're a music group. What do they call themselves? And then, you know, forget it. He's like, well, what about the police? What about them? He's like, you ever heard of them? No, but I see them. And then he's like, oh, we're in concert. And at that point, because they're playing music so loud out of the car, the police come to pull them over. 
But I just love that because I because you know being a kid back then, I'm like, oh, I know who men at work are. I know who the police oh, are. Totally. I was like, how do you not know who they are? And the music they listen to, I, I listen to, and then uh, the cops pull them over and definitely give them some uh, serious toot. And of course, Ren Ren is not much better either. He's not taken very kindly to the the cops' actions. But I, I thought it was just a, a cute little scene because it just really just shows what. Ren has to deal with in order to combat what is going on in this town and just the culture shock of I've come to a big town where there's clubs and dancing and all this and now I'm here and it's like whoa what have I got myself into or why are we here right so I love that scene it's fun that's a funny it's scene moment. I love it's that moment. yeah the police like no I but I've seen him like in concert yeah. no but they're right behind us. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff. And yeah, it just made me think when you were saying about that, it's like one of the great things about this film is that it makes you realize uh, just how important music is. I mean, just, it's simple. It's I'm stating the obvious here, but uh, if you've ever been without music for an extended amount of time, and then you hear it for that first time, it's, it's like angels from heaven. So I can't imagine being in a town where something like rock and roll music is outlawed. I mean, I'm even like that at work. Like I, I get all excited when everyone leaves the office and I'm in the office of myself because I can just put music on because I just, yeah. I, I just work better to it and it could just be instrumental. It could be, you know, songs, whatever, as long as there's some kind of noise, it just, it always just helped me through things. Like, you know, you clean your house, you put music on or, or when I'm writing, I put music on. So Music is life, man. Music is life. And I listen to music uh, when I write. It inspires my imagination, my writing, my creativity. And I listen to music when I'm driving. I listen to music all the time. So, yeah. Anyway, it's uh, I love Ren being so confounded by the fact that it's like, what, that, what is this an alien world that I've just landed upon? Yeah. So speaking of, I, I do like Ren and Willie slash Willard's uh, relationship in this and how they become friends, fast friends, especially in the high school hall when <laughs> Ren bumps into Willard and Willard is like, what the hell, man? Watch where you're going. And Ren just gives it right back to him. And you can see Willard respects him for that. Yeah. They have to their John back at each other. And, and Willard's like kind of smirks. It's like, okay, you're cool. You're cool. And then they become fast friends. I'm like, oh, that works. I can dig that. I like that little uh, introduction of their relationship. Yeah, especially when you find out Willard has such a temper. That could have mm-hmm. went, it could have went the other way. Sure. And, and Chris Penn plays that really well. Like he he feels like he's he's a loose cannon. Speaking of their relationship, I will get to my first favorite scene. I'm going to preface it by mentioning another scene. Speaking of Willard being a loose cannon. This is something I can relate to is I had used to go to a lawn dancing bar and often sit at a table with a cocktail while all the pretty ladies out there dancing. And it's not fun watching from the sidelines. You want to get out there and and dance. Luckily, a friend of mine, I'm going to give a shout out right now to Ben Kaufman, who knew how to line dance. I would stand next to him and watch him learn the steps, et cetera. And then I grew a little more confident and I get out there, but you don't want to be on the sidelines because you'll be sitting there with your girl and she wants to get out there. Ladies love to dance. I think we talked about this uh, before dirty dancing. So I felt for Willard in the scene when he's sitting with Rusty as date and she is just dying and, and 
itching to get on the dance floor and there's nothing you can do. He can't dance. So this leads into then my first favorite scene, which is I'm calling teaching Willie how to dance. Then I wrote free Willie. <laughs> um, that was on my list. Ren is like, you know what? If we're going to do this thing where if I'm going to stand up to the town council and we're going to have do the same, I'm, you're going to learn how to dance and he's going to teach him. So we get a whole montage of Ren trying first trying to get Willard to understand what the beat of a song is. And you see them oh, snapping so and there is almost no dialogue. It's all music overlaid and it's really funny. So they're in a car and they're like, you know, uh, beating on the, the steering wheel and on the dashboard and Willard's not getting it. There's some cute moments where Ren and Willard are with Ren's little cousins and, and treating them as like their dance partners because the little girls are just having fun and you don't have to be embarrassed or work on some twirls and things like that. And there's some cute moments there. And my favorite part in this entire montage has always been, it always has been since I was a kid, is when they're walking through the high school hall and you see... <laughs> Ren leading the way and he's like bouncing to the beat and snapping his finger and then you see him kind of uh, crouching down. He's bouncing down and up. And then you see Chris Penn following him doing the exact opposite. He's missing the beat. Like instead of going down on the downbeat, he's going up. So he's doing the exact opposite. He's bouncing upward. It's if you know the movie, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not explaining it very well. But that's my favorite moment in the montage because he's still not getting the beat. He's not feeling the rhythm. And finally he gets it. And it, it's a great ending because it's this hilarious thing where Chris Penn is doing this full on like choreographed dance or at least these yes. dance moves. And this is out in the country. Like he's out in a field or behind like by like a barn or, you know, uh, in somebody's yard. It's in somebody's garden. It's very country-esque. And you have Ren sitting on a tractor or some sort of farm machinery and uh, watching and applauding and hooting and hollering for Willard, who's finally finding his rhythm and getting some dance steps down. And there's some really goofy moves. It's dated. Oh, yeah. But I was I was like, did he learn some of this from the Oompa Loompas? Yeah. He's doing some weird with, with his yeah. arms. And it's but it's still fun. Like it's oh, very, yeah. it's totally entertaining. Teaching Willie how to dance. I, that's one of yeah, it's always yeah, have, been one of my favorite scenes. I have that down too as one of my favorite scenes. And yeah, that that final scene is it's like he's got the choreography down, but there's still not that looseness to it that you right. need in order to perfect it. But I'm like, all right, he's getting there, he's getting there. But even the scene where they're kind of running through the that field and they do that jump step back. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, there you go. You know, he's got a little spring in his step there. He's he's looking good. And the thing was too that supposedly he didn't know how to dance going into this, so Just he say. really was learning, and um, he was definitely showing some improvement throughout. Right. So Chris Penn, the actor, did not actually know how to dance, so that worked for the character clearly. And I guess in the little research I had done as well, he was a wrestler, and they tried to incorporate his athleticism into it, which you can see a little bit when he does the right. dive rolls. Yes. You can see they're kind of working a little bit of his wrestling background into some of the dance moves. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. Especially like like you mentioned too, the scene where they're in Ren's car, and Ren's got the old uh, 
Volkswagen Beetle. Oh yeah. man, I miss those. Right. And they're doing, you know, they're doing, they're trying to do the snap first, and then he sees that's not working. So they're literally trying to like clap with one another just to try to what, you know, he's doing whatever he can to try to get him to learn the beat. And that's that's the stuff I kind of like. Was as good as Karate Kid, like learning how to karate, you know, paint the fence stuff like that. But I liked how they were trying to incorporate some kind of techniques of like what you currently know, see how we can get that to work. Or the two of them are on the uh, bleachers and they're just doing like just foot moves together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's a great sequence. Yeah, it is. It's well uh, crafted, choreographed. It gives you, you know, obviously we're watching the relationship mature to their friendship, their bond that comes out of this. And then it makes you think of, have you ever had something to teach someone how to do something athletic or something that required innate rhythm, like dancing? Like I remember trying to teach a friend how to ski and how difficult that was uh, versus trying to teach somebody how to dance. Somebody Now you can teach someone dance steps, but if they don't have rhythm, listening to music with somebody, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. It's like, how would you teach somebody can you hear the beat and can you start moving to that beat? And do you know what a downbeat and upbeat and getting the synco, you know, getting uh, the syncopation, all that, uh, just getting into the musicality of it. Probably easier said than done, you know? Oh, yeah. Because not everybody has rhythm. No. And that's really what makes wedding receptions fun. <laughs> so, yeah, man. Uh, so that's a great scene. What will you have next? I had, this is more towards the uh, third act of the film, when Ariel pseudo confronts her dad about what had happened at the town meeting. So Ren decides that he wants to put this dance on in the town. He's, he's going to bring dancing back. And he's, he's trying to drum up all the support. And, you know, everybody tells him, it's like, the only way it's going to happen is you got to get in front of the town council and they're going to have to approve it. And he does that but he still loses. Right. And um, we, so we have a scene where uh, the Reverend is practicing a sermon and Ariel comes in to talk mm-hmm. to him. Things have been kind of falling apart. And of course, at first the Reverend's kind of blaming Ren for this because it seems like ever since Ren came into town, all this stuff is happening. But the thing is all this stuff has been happening before Ren came into town. And Ariel is basically airing out her dirty laundry on this and saying that, you know, she still loves her dad, but it's not her dad's responsibility to take care of the town. And she's been a bad girl before any of this stuff has kind of happened. It gets a little melodramatic at the end because she does this whole thing where she's forgiven, forgiven. But I think it was a nice little eye opener for the Reverend to kind of start more of the turn. You know, he turned a little bit when he heard what Ren had to say about the dancing and stuff and like, hey, why can't we dance? Uh, so I thought it was a good dad-daughter scene and just really, yeah. you know, just turns a little bit more and then it kind of breaks, unfortunately breaks into the the book burning thing. But um, yeah, I just like the whole, you know, confrontation. I agree. It's a good scene. Uh, it's a good call. And I'll bring this up now that there was a remake of this film, 2011. Never saw it. Uh, I never did. I just watched some YouTube clips and what they did do, it's a lot of it is very close to the original, sticking to the story of the original, but they do delve deeper uh, with some of the loss of the brother and that particular scene in the church between uh, Ariel and her father is in, in this 
remake, uh, Ariel is played by Julianne Huff and the Reverend is played by Dennis Quaid. Uh, her mother is in the scene too. She's there. Uh, Vi, oh. played by Mary Steenburgen, apparently. And anyway, uh, they, it's, uh, the scene is longer. It's more involved. So they do in the remake like they must have been listening to. Oh, there you go. It's, it's interesting what they decided to expand on a little bit in the remake, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, good scene. Uh, and I'm going to go back a little bit. And you were just talking about it. And I'm just going to shout out one of my other favorite scenes. Always one of the most uh, memorable scenes um, to me. And I think I mentioned it in my early memories is definitely Ren's speech uh, to the town council. I was always so nervous for him as a kid watching it and then rewatching it. You know, he doesn't enjoy public speaking and getting up and facing the town council and knowing what they probably think of him and then using the tactic of quoting the Bible. I just kind of like that, you know, where he's standing up for the, and then you have a nice moment with uh, Diane Wiest, who plays Vi, uh, Lithgow's wife in this. Um, I think it's wasted where, in this movie. Completely. Yes. Yeah, she's, that she was in my complaints. Uh, under, underused in this movie as a, because she is a wonderful actress. Yeah. And she plays Ariel's mother and she's a little bit more on the side of the kids in this situation. And she, uh, speaks up and says we should allow Ren to speak. So there's a nice moment there. And then, uh, yeah, Ren gets up to the microphone and um, actually gets right up in the faces of the town council and quoting the Bible, but then has the quote, which I started this whole thing off with saying, you know, the law had its place once, but not anymore. Dance has been with us since the beginning. That's the way it's always been. It's the way it should be now. I like that line. I think Kevin Bacon's pretty strong in the scene and so that's always been one of my favorite scenes. Speaking of Reverend Shaw, I think, you know, you actually mentioned this earlier. He, this is one of my favorite moments. He has a really nice moment near the end when the town council meeting has occurred, the scene with Ariel uh, in the church has occurred and the book burning sequence. Now, he's acquiescing a bit and he has a nice moment at the pulpit talking to the congregation and he makes a comparison to being a first time parent. And in the scene, we get to see wonderful performance by John Lithgow as he experiences humility, letting go. And like you said earlier, Bill, he actually says, if uh, speaking of the, ch- the, the kids, he says, if you don't trust them, how can they become trustworthy? It's a lot of good messages oh, yeah. in, his, in his speech. And you can see he knows that he can't control everything. And so he does have to let go. And so he allows them to have the dance outside the boundary of Beaumont at the mill, just outside the border there. Yeah. So that's a good, I, I like that moment. Here's a little moment I'm going to shout out to, which I actually really loved, which I caught watching it earlier today, was that now they're getting all dressed up for the prom and Ren shows up to Ariel's house. He's looking good and he's, you know, he's <laughs> coming out of his uh, little yellow uh, Volkswagen bug, but he's looking sharp in his little tux and he's about to walk up to the door, but Ariel comes out first in her prom dress and Ren says, he's like, I was going to come to the door. And, and he almost like stutters, like he stops. And she's like, what? And he's like, you're beautiful. 
And it's such an honest moment. It's a really oh, yeah. nice moment. From I, I like that moment too, too. I was like, oh, you got her. Yeah. It's so genuine. Like he's, you've seen that moment so many times in films when it's the girl coming down the staircase in the gown. Yeah. It's Titanic. It's the, it's that scene when you have your leading lady appearing in the evening gown or mm-hmm. the prom dress, right? Yep. It's all, it's a moment. It's a moment you look forward to. And the guy sees her and is blown away, breathless. And that's, but he's just so genuinely caught off guard and honestly just says, you're beautiful. And then as he's walking her to the car, he has this cocky smile on his face. He does this thing purposely. It's a little muggy, like he's mugging to the camera almost a little bit, but because he's looking around going, yeah, she's hot. She's with me. Yeah, I got the best looking girl at the prom. That's right. Uh, and I laughed out loud. I was like, he's on top of the world right now. Hilarious. And in that moment too, she can't open the door. She left it locked. Yeah. And he has to go back into the car, unlock it from inside, run back around the car so he can do the gentlemanly thing and open the door for her so she can get to the car. The time of day it's shot. I love the golden hour lighting at that moment, the purple sky and you hear the credit crickets and it's the uh that country setting which i mentioned i love it's great stuff so love that moment i was thinking watching that when he says that you're a beautiful thing i was like oh i gotta remember to tell my kid when he's old enough always make sure you compliment the girl my son needs to know that that you need to compliment them i'm going to give a few more shout outs the the fight that occurs outside of the dance this is not a dance fight or a punching dance sequence this is an actual fight that happens between uh chuck and his, his cronies, cronies yeah. And uh, Ren and Willard on the other side. This is funny, man. Ren gets his roadhouse on. This is so, yeah. I like, we're doing this backwards. It's so funny. I'm like, because obviously, Roadhouse comes out years later, still in the 80s, but years later. And it just reminded me of this where obviously Ren had learned how to fight, I'm assuming, from doing his gymnastics and dancing in Chicago. And then, of course, Ren McCormick would famously go on to combine all of these art forms to invent Jim Cotta. Yes. A martial arts form that was <laughs> center of the 1985 film entitled Jim Cotta. That's maybe where they got it from. Yeah, because he kind of does that little jump kick thing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like when did, does he know martial arts now? And what was he? Yeah. But he's kind of doing a gymnastics. Yeah, that is just kind of funny. Of course, I'm kidding. Kevin Bacon nor Ren McCormick invented Jim Cotta. The dance finale is great. It always has a place in my heart. Yeah, that uh, is the fun. prom. So that entire sequence, especially when it starts off with everyone being a wallflower, we've all oh, been there. It's horrible. Yes. Reminds me playing. eighth grade dance. Yep, there you go. You're just waiting for somebody to break the ice. Somebody get out there and get it started. You don't want to be the first one on the dance floor or ever. Sometimes you don't have a date and you're just on the wall. This is when the song Almost Paradise is playing and love that tune. I'm watching this today, Bill, just pumping my fists to the slow, like, romantic Almost Paradise. Uh, it was, it's just great to hear that song again. So many great moments in the dance finale. When you say, <laughs> when Willard is doing his, he gets out there, does a little solo dance, because now, now the fight has happened and Ren comes back in and everybody's jazz and kick up the music. And literally there is a shit ton of glitter raining down. Oh, the entire the biggest glitter bomb ever. 
there there are they must have had all their money was spent on glitter that seemed most of the budget probably on this film is spent on glitter there are buckets of glitter pouring raining down this entire sequence so everybody gets their nice little solo during the dance sequence and willard gets out there and he's doing we're like yeah do your choreographed moves that you learned earlier and he kind of gets out there and he's like jumping around the pogo stick he's pogo sticking (laughs) well said exactly and it's so wonderful and i'll never forget it as a kid i should have put this in my earliest memories but watching again now i'm like oh that's right this happens he freezes like he forgets what do i do now and you're like oh shit this is embarrassing and then he just goes right into the saturday night fever pose where he shoots his fingers one way or the other and the crowd goes nuts and you're like hell yeah man well done there's some other great dancers in here uh, it's all feel good. We're watching it literally through what I call the disco ball lens. Yeah. I forgot I about like, that. I was like, get rid of that, please. I want to see what? more of the. Yeah. It makes I it a little like hard that. to see. I was like, I already got the glitter going on. I don't need the disco ball. I mean, it adds a little to the romanticism of it, I suppose, but it makes things a bit blurry. Yeah. All, all those dancers went from a zero to a 10. It was amazing. It's like being oppressed for five years. They all must be dancing in that steel mill at some point, I guess. I don't know. Oh, they've got so much pent up energy and dance moves that they've been waiting to just release. And then it cracks me up too. no adult supervision whatsoever. They're all worried about drugs and alcohol and stuff. I would have thought they would have like adults like every three feet. Where are the chaperones? Yeah. Yeah. Chaperone city. That's why I was like, you should hold the dance at the school. That way you can run it. At least you you can keep an eye on them. Yeah. Instead, you've got uh, Reverend Shaw and Vi standing like a mile away. And then I feel bad for Andy when he opens up shop on Monday with all that goddamn glitter. It's all going to be in the the feed. Sweep that up. It's going to be in the grain in the feed. (laughs) That's hilarious. Oh, well. Uh, that's it for me for favorite moments and scenes, man. Good stuff. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have hope. Yeah. If it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, just file a complaint with the complaint department. Uh, so what do you got for Swiss cheese or complaint department, Jason? I am going to start with this real quick. And this is just kind of a lighter complaint. It was weird in the beginning. It felt like Rusty and or the other girls are, are trying to set up Ariel with Ren from the get. Yeah. Well, get them for yourself. Thank you very much, Bill Ban. I wrote that down. Oh, okay. We understand that Ariel is with Chuck, and but I'm like, why doesn't Rusty just go for Ren? Why are they trying to set up Ariel with Ren when they know she has a boyfriend? It felt a bit assumed like that Ariel and Ren were going to be together from the get-go. And then we learned later that Rusty is actually with Willard. But from an right. audience point of view, in the no beginning idea. of the film, Ren has literally come into town that day. Gone to church. Gone to church and is now being introduced to the town folk, including the Reverend himself and his daughter, Ariel. And Rusty is all like, Ariel, you should go for this guy. I'm like, what? Wait. What? Why? This is my next sort of complaint here. It's just really funny to me because Ariel, who's dating Chuck, who we know right off from is like the bad boy. Yes. Who drives this wonderful uh, truck with antlers on the top. <laughs> just brilliant. Know, like, what the hell? This is country. Yeah. It's a country, small, small country town, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, okay, this guy's going to be a little bit of a douche. But uh, <laughs> um, anyway, you know, he's still, you know, he's a good looking kid and 
Ariel's clearly dating him and, and uh, we don't know anything about him at this point, but they pull up to this spot, this diner. Ariel jumps out of the truck and the place is popping and hopping with the kids and they're all got their food outside and et cetera. It has a very almost like 50s diner feel yes. like in a way, you know, with the little neon and stuff. Ariel pops out of the truck uh, with a boom box and puts a cassette tape in to play some music. Ooh, she's really, uh, you know, even her her boyfriend, Chuck, is like, uh, you know, your dad's going to bust your butt if he finds you playing this kind of music and dancing in the sheets plays yep. and the clearly this diner. here's where my <laughs> thank you yeah clearly sorry. the music has supernatural powers as everybody inside and outside is infected by the rhythm of this music of dancing in the sheets and begins to dance everybody there's a kid playing a video game inside the grill cook is inside no way in sam hell anybody could hear this music no but they're way. all dancing to it yep Everybody outside spread out around the scene is dancing to it. And just, they all have their own little dance moves, which are hilarious. And yeah, that's my problem here is that there's no way in hell any of those people could no. hear the music. I mean, we did have radios back then that could have done that. That was not the radio. That's no. for sure. I <laughs> mean, you would have re- radios that the speakers were size of that truck. But yeah, that thing was not playing music. But I did like how that scene ended when the re- reverend shuts it off. Yeah. And doesn't say anything and just like, oh, your mom thought you would need some money and just give it to her and just walks off. And I was like, you handled that well, sir. You yes, handled and that very well. Goes right to the point that I was making earlier is that I remembered him being this overbearing asshole. And he's not. No, he's not. It's been that scene proves it. It was like I was ready for him to blow up at her. And I'm like, oh, he doesn't yell at her. Yeah. He plays it calm and cool, which I think is much more effective. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you can, he's just wearing disappointment on his face yeah, and gives her the money. And she feels more of the impact as a result of that. Let's talk about the tractor race. <laughs> All right. I mean, That's- it is a memorable scene from that movie. Of course. Yeah. But watching it now, I think I was just laughing the whole time because now it's been spoofed so much where you have these two relatively slow <laughs> vehicles that are going... For some reason, like they're 200 yards apart. I don't know why they could be 20 yards apart because that's how slow they move. Right. And then because the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, all right, if they hit each other, would they have really gotten hurt? But I was just saying, would I? I'm sure there's, like you said, there's been so many ripoffs of that scene or uh, spoofs of that scene. Wouldn't it be hilarious? It, I don't know if there must be a spoof that does this, but would the tractors actually do collide? And absolutely nothing happens. They yeah, just stop. Just like, dink. Yeah, they just stop and they both get out and they go their own ways. But yeah, they make it seem like it's so terrifying. Like, right. No, not at all. And then the fact that Ren's all like, in your face, I won. I'm like, the only reason you won is because your goddamn shoelace was tied to the pedal. Don't rub it in, man. You got lucky. So that scene is so cheeseball now. That does not hold at all. I am going to go straight to one of my memorable. deep questions for you. Go ahead. This, I have this in my questions, which we usually we save for at the end, but I'm going to say it right now. If you were in a chicken tractor race and only won because your shoelace got caught, how long would you wait before you told anyone that that's how you won? Or would you tell them at all? Oh, I would eventually tell Willard. Yeah. yeah I would because it's, it's funny. That's the only reason because we, we know this and it's funny that Ren, 
he's wise enough to get the hell off the tractor. He's like, this is stupid. Like I'm, yeah, I'm not going to get, and I, I'm just going to jump off now. And he can't because his shoelace is caught, which is great. It's a great little moment device thing here in the scene. And he, one of the best moments is after he wins and he jumps up and tries to get off the tractor and he can't because he's still yeah. stuck, mm-hmm. but he's celebrating and they all come up and hug him. But it would kind of be embarrassing at the same time to be like, yeah, no, I actually tried to jump like five times. Yeah, just so couldn't. he knows why I kept getting up. That's the only reason why I won. I'm not really that brave. Oh, yeah, because like Willow was getting so angry, like, stay down, go. Right. I'm like, I'm like, what happens at the end? What does that prove? It's not like you're playing for tractors. I don't know. Yeah, who's who's the mo- who's more courageous, more brave? And just the music. Yeah, the, the other guys is a wuss, I suppose. But yeah, uh, that's it. Holding out for a hero, man. Yeah. Chuck puts in the cassette, cranks it up. You got to have some some uh, hero music. But I just kept thinking, like, what is the worst that's going to happen if they hit each other? They're just not going because they even because they even they unfortunately do that long shot, and you just see how slow they're moving. Right. Yeah. I was like, they're not even getting in second gear. How fast those things go? I don't know. It's amazing. Maybe some whiplash. I don't know. Yeah, it would have just been a really loud crunch, and nothing really would have happened. Mm-hmm. They kind of would have scratched up the tractors a little bit yeah yeah it's funny uh good 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 stuff man hey man i just love that ren's backstory is that he was a gymnast in chicago right have you ever known a high school to have a gymnastics team no i'm sure not, not until there college are, right but, I but don't know. i've never knew any high school and i, didn't I know was any high so school. confused in this movie for a while because i was like rusty alludes to because she found out Ren's schedule for Ariel. She's telling Ariel, well, this is Ren's whole schedule. I've got it. So you know exactly where he is and when. And she mentions he's at team practice until four. I'm like, wait, what team is Ren on? Is he playing playing sports? And then I finally put it together. And then he talks about being kicked off the team afterward, but we never see him as part of a team or at practice. But then I learned, oh, he was on the, then they do say gymnastics team. He was on the gymnastics team. And then when we see him practicing on the horizontal bar, AKA the high bar with Willard kind of watching him, we're like that, I guess was practice, but I was like, it, that was weird. The whole gymnastics thing is weird. The fact that the two of them are the only ones in the gym and he's doing that kind of stuff. I was like, uh, yeah, supervisor. Well, it's the eighties. So we didn't supervise stuff as well back then, but still where's the rest of the team then? Yeah. Where, where's the guy doing the, the horse or the, the yeah the, exercises? The, yeah, the pommel horse or the parallel bars or the yeah. the rings. The rings, yeah. Where's all that stuff going on? It's a little it's a little confounding. It's a little weird. Um, yeah, there's a lot of bits and pieces that are just kind of hanging out there. Yeah, it feels like again, there are scenes that are missing a little bit. When I talked about earlier how things in the begin in the first half an hour of this movie jump a little bit. And from scene to scene, you're like, oh, did I miss did I miss something? Did I what is he talking about? Because there's like, a scene where you find out that Ren's mom lost her job because of supposedly of Ren's actions. And then oh, I right, was kind of like on, yeah. and I was like, why is that why she's here? Because she needs the work, or she transferred here, or she's moved in with her sister because of what happened. That was all hanging out there too. I didn't oh, get any absolutely. of those answers. So here's my next thing is speaking of which. In the beginning, cuts to a scene where we see Ren sitting in an empty classroom, clearly trying to catch up on some work. And this kid walks in 
with a joint in his hand and Ren clearly knows who he is. His name is Rich and he goes up to him. He's rich. And this kid is clearly like the drug, a drug dealer or drug pusher, whatever drug middleman. And they have a, a, a little confrontation. So this kid, Rich pops into this empty classroom, Ren approaches him and is like, no, I don't want the weed. I don't want the joint. And then all of a sudden a teacher magically appears out of nowhere out of the corner, just come walks up and is like, Hey, give that to me. They run into the bathroom. Ren flushes the thing down the toilet, makes a snarky remark. And I guess that was the coach or a teacher. Regardless, Rich, the kid with the joint that was trying to push it on Ren is we know is one of Chuck's bullies, his cronies, one of Chuck's right, guys. Which I didn't realize until later in the film. Then I was like, right. Oh, Chuck's trying to set him up. Okay. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you don't get that right then. You got to wait feels, 20 minutes later until you figure that out. So this is an ongoing problem in the film is that some of the scenes feel like they're out of order yes. because that scene should have come after later when we understood that Rich was one of Chuck's cronies, one of his buddies, one of the quote unquote bad guys and in the high school. But it comes abruptly and we're like, wait, who is this guy? And why yeah. does Ren know him? Like clearly like Ren knows who he is. It's like, no, you're not going to give it to me. I don't want your joint. And like, wait, who is this guy? And then you put it together later, just like with the gymnastics thing. It's like, wait, he's on a team? Oh, he's on the gym. Oh, that's what that scene before meant. It's backwards. We should have known this information before we saw that scene. Yeah. It's almost like they wanted to cut that scene out, but had to keep it in because of the conversation between Ren and his uncle, because he brings up the drug thing. And it's like, well, if you don't have a drug scene... You got to have to leave it in, but it's very confusing. And yeah. I probably just made it more confusing for the audience. Watch the movie now and you'll see what we're talking about. There's a couple of abrupt scenes. Yes. Where you're kind of, you get a little confused and then it makes sense later. And you're like, oh, I wish I would have known what I know now then. Mm-hmm. Anyway, moving on. So I'll, it's just to bring up the steel mill uh, dance montage again. Love it. It's amazing. It's part cheese. It's part exciting. It's part ridiculous. It's part relatable because I have done that on a much smaller scale to answer your question from earlier, Bill. Okay. I have been, yeah, listening to music late at night, smoking a cigarette outside, looking up at the stars, and I'll just feel the need to move to the rhythm, to the dance. Got to get that energy out. It's great. You know, dancing is a great outlet. So uh, I'd mentioned, I think Kevin Bacon is pretty good in the, the dance sequence when it is him. But watching it now, knowing what we know, a little older, a little more experienced and knowing that there are stunt doubles in the scene, it is quite noticeable. And it is interesting because you can clearly tell and it's shot cleverly. So you don't actually see the stuntman's face like you could buy it was Kevin Bacon, except for the uh, except for the, the problem is there's what you call you would just call a dancer's body. Right. So we know what. Kevin Bacon's physique is. He's slim, he's trim, he's in shape. But a dancer's body is very specific. It's uh, lean, muscular, and toned. And then in the same sequence, this is definitely a complaint, and it's confounding that there happens to be a conveniently placed horizontal bar in the steel mill where Ren gets to do a little bit of his gymnastics. And that stunt double is not a dancer, stunt double that is a gymnast 
And you can tell because the stunt double has a gymnast's body, which is very specific. And when you see the gymnast, you'll, as you know, when you watch the Olympics, et cetera, any gymnastics competitions, male gymnasts have a fuller upper body. So they're extremely toned, but their biceps, triceps, their lats, their chest is wider. Their shoulders are broader and it's clear. It's just kind of funny. So you can really pinpoint who, where the dancer double is and where the gymnast double is in the sequence. You're like, oh my God, that guy's, that dude's ripped. And, or that guy's like in really freaking good shape. Those guys aren't Kevin Bacon. (laughs) It's kind of funny. So minor complaints, a little more noticeable now. What else you got? Um, just that Ariel dies in the beginning doing the car surfing thing. <laughs> How the You're hell is she- it's scary, man? <laughs> yeah. I just not watched that going. I would have oh found it God. more believable if she jumped in the back of the car. There's no way she got through that window. Yeah. If she jumped in the back, I, I would have bought it. But the mm-hmm. fact that she somehow comes through the passenger window like that perfectly. Oh, you mean if like she just jumped into the bed of the truck? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I meant bed of the truck. Thank you. I thought maybe you meant just get back of the car no. that she was in. No, no. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Her best bet would have been to jump in the bed of the truck with the antlers. It's a, there requires a little suspension to just believe. It's such a quick cut when she yeah. jumps into the passenger side door of the truck. You'd whack your head or do something. You there's yeah. no way you, you just slither in there so easily and so quickly. Uh, that's a dangerous. <laughs> it's just like I actually got a little nervous watching that. I'm like. I did too. This is that not cool. Like you one slip and it's over. You're done. Yeah. Oh, I know. I kept thinking about how she would do a face plant for one of the cars. It's like, have you, like I used, I, I've sketched before uh, on the snow because you could slide a lot easier, you know, hanging mm-hmm. onto the back bumper of a car. Yeah. And even then car maybe gets up to 25, not even 30 miles an hour, but you feel like you're going. And when you let go and you hit the ground yep. and this was on snow, it hurts. Yeah. So you don't want to fall out of a yeah. I remember moving like vehicle jumping off like a moving uh, golf cart. You still kind of you hit that harder than you would think. So they must have been at least doing fifty. Yeah, she's. she's I was going to say this is completely around. unrelated, but you've been in a moving vehicle and almost hit in the head with a baseball. Yes, that's so. true. <laughs> you have to go back and. That's a totally to different our, thing. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring it up because I just remember that. That's a story from a past podcast. That's right. So I think I, we we talked about. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask if you had any other ma- major complaints. Yeah, not major. This is the the fight, the actual fist fight. It seems like or slap fight between Ariel and disgruntled boyfriend Chuck. It's a little oh. rough. Yeah, it's a little the, rough because. She, but um, there is no but. The fact of the matter is, Ariel starts the fight. She clocks Chuck. She punches right. him. He slaps her back. Then she decides to go batshit crazy on his truck and starts bashing out the headlights. And then he tackles her and ends up smacking her again. It's just, there's some, it's, it's a little rough. Yeah. Don't like to see that. I don't know how they handled that in the remake. I'm a little curious. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. If her father saw that swollen and saw that she'd been beat up, her father would have been like, okay, we're going to go kill some kid right now. Okay. And funny enough, that is in the remake. Uh, oh, they, okay. She's still bruised. And he, uh, Dennis Quaid playing the Reverend accuses Ren of doing that to her. Uh, okay. So they, that it feels a little bit more realistic versus kind of in this, 
she doesn't have any interaction with the Reverend for a couple of days. Like he literally says, John Lithgow says, I haven't seen you for a couple of days. And all of a sudden her bruise is gone completely. Her mm-hmm. black eye. Anyway, so there's a little complaint in there. Uh, you know, when we talk about um, scenes that could have been longer or a little bit more investigation into scenes, I think they probably could have dealt with the whole, the loss of the sun, the the kind of, there's a great deal of pain lingering underneath the situation with the Reverend and his wife, Vi, and their daughter, Ariel, and that family situation, which you could delve into a little bit more. It's not really a complaint, uh, but they do, again, in the remake, address it a little bit Let's go say, because they don't really have a family moment about it. It's just not, yeah, it's just, and you don't want to get too heavy-handed. This right. is, it's Footloose. This is a dancing movie, right? We got to keep it light to a certain extent. Yeah. So we don't want to get too, like, oh, because that could get really heavy. Oh, yeah. That's for a different kind of movie. But I feel like I need to watch the remake now, also. Anyway, um, that's it for complaints, man. It was just a question about it, not necessarily a complaint. What did you think the time frame was? Because so Ren comes in sometime during the school year, and then right. the whole thing is to start this dance senior year. So it's got to be a period of time. So it's not like he's, he's coming in like the last two weeks of school and then putting on a dance. So he's, he's probably there like half the school year, right? So this probably all takes place during half the school year, you think? That's a good question. But it never gets cold. It's a good The passage of time is not clear now in this movie that's a complaint for sure it's just it's part of like we were saying earlier is we got to get this movie in under two hours and so th- some things are going to get glossed over right i mean it's not that important but it, i just made me kind of think about it yeah there's no like changing of the seasons it just seems to all happen within like three days <laughs> yeah because it's like how long does it week. take him to teach willard how to dance mm-hmm. they go to the the bar across the state line one night, you know, and it's like, okay, we do get some nighttime stuff. And then, yeah, it feels like it takes place over maybe two week period. Yeah. Cause even then I didn't realize Willard and Rusty were dating until they actually get into the bar and sit down. Wait, and I'm like, I'm Oh, there are a couple. Cause I, I would just would have been like, if you go dancing with your friends, if the one person stays by all the girls just come dance anyway, regardless, like if your mm-hmm. boyfriend is sitting there at the table, if it's not going to dance, I'm going, I'm going to dance floor anyway. So I right. thought it was kind of weird. I was just like, Rusty, just go out on the dance floor. What the hell? Just the three of you just dance. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. They're not dating yet. Right. So, right. yeah, I thought it was just, they were all just getting together. And then I was like, wait, they're a couple? Okay. Yeah. Well, exactly. That's why, again, it's backwards. Like if they had established that Rusty and Willard were a couple in the beginning of the movie, then all that makes yeah. sense, you know, a little bit yeah. more. All right, let's move on to Hey, It's That Actor. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's That Actor. Why don't you go first this time? Okay, there's a possibility we might match, but feeling confident here. So I'm going to go with uh, Francis Lee McCain. Ah, I was tempted. Were you? I was tempted. I did not go with her, but good call. Yeah. All right, so she played... Ethel McCormick, Ren's mom, recently saw her in Back to the Future, where she played Stella Baines, Marty McFly's grandmother oh, slash sure. Lorraine's mother when Marty went back in time. That's great. Um, she also starred in Stand By Me, and she played Billy's mom, Lynn Peltzer, who kicked some gremlin ass in 1984's oh, Gremlins. Wow. 
and she is still a working actress today. So my yeah, AIDS actress, yeah, Frances Lee McCain. Good call. Recognizable for sure. You see that face and you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because I watched she's the whole time. I was like, oh, she's been in some horror movie. And I couldn't think of what it was. And then I was like, oh, my God, Gremlins. Yep. Microwave and some Gremlins. Yeah, no, that sucks. Great, right, great stuff. Who do you got? Uh, I had a hard time because I, I thought about her and I was like, you know what? I don't see what this guy is all about because uh, he seemed familiar to me, but I'm still not quite sure if he's that familiar but <laughs> leo getter leo getter he's my guy rich one of chuck's cronies the guy that just abruptly shows up in the scene with the joint that he tries to push on to rend to try to, to kind of pigeonhole him or uh frame him as a you know for having drugs on him so leo uh getter he also the same year plays tommy in a cult classic entitled silent night deadly night Oh, okay. Later on, he had a small role as Ensign Fox in No Way Out, a movie we did on this podcast. Oh, no way. No okay. Way Out from 1987. And I can see him. I'm just trying to, I got to I gotta look back at No Way Out to see what scene it was because I can see him in it or I can envision him in it. Um, so he'd be acting until around 2005. Interestingly enough, he's done some producing since then. And he was the supervising producer on the show, The Closer, which happened to star Kira Sedgwick, oh. who is married to Kevin wow. Bacon. That's almost in my uh, facts and trivia. Six degrees right there. Oh, see, we're going to we're going to talk about that. Yes. A little bit later on. So, yeah. Uh, and Kira Sedgwick. Uh, has been married to Kevin Bacon since 1988. Look at that. See, one of the one of the Hollywood power couples we don't talk enough about. Yeah. Still going strong. Good for them. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And then uh, Leo Getter was also a co-executive producer on the show Major Crimes. And he was a writer on at least one of the episodes, if not more, of the Netflix Western series Longmire. So, Leo Getter. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I did not recognize him, to be honest. So, no good call on that one. So let's move on to facts and trivia. Facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have for Footloose? Uh, this one is, you can find in, in most of the research, uh, that this film was loosely based on events that took place in the small, rural, and extremely religious farming town of Elmore City. I am reading this from the trivia uh, off of IMDb. Uh, Elmore City is in Oklahoma, and uh, apparently this all happened in 1978. Dancing had been banned for nearly 90 years in Elmore City. That's crazy. Uh, uh, Oklahoma. Until a group of high school teenagers challenged it. So that's what Footloose is loosely based on. Good for them. Did you hear what the original title for, or the placeholder title for Footloose was before they decided on Footloose? I don't know how this one didn't. No. Cheek to cheek. Oh. Wow. Yeah, that would have been uh, tearing up the box office. Hey, I'm going to go watch Cheek to Cheek. Glad that was the only placeholder. Yeah, yeah. That's God, funny. that's a horrible time. I feel like I've seen that movie. It wasn't about dancing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was playing at the Piccadilly Theater. Hey, Cheek to Cheek. In a 2013 interview with Howard Stern, Kevin Bacon admitted that 
he's actually tipped DJs at weddings not to play Footloose. <laughs> I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Because <laughs> he, he, I guess people really expect him to dance to the song as he did in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, pretty funny. Oh, this was kind of cool. So we talked about, speaking of his dancing, uh, the stunt doubles, right? Uh, I like this. The main dance double for Kevin Bacon in the famous warehouse scene was Peter Tram, who happened to be married at the time to Maureen Jahan, who was the famously uncredited dance double for Jennifer Beals in Flashdance. Oh, there you go. That's so, cool. Peter Tram, the double for Kevin Bacon, was married to Maureen Jahan, who is the double for Jennifer Beals. Fun fact. Yeah, I like that one. Um, so Christopher Atkins from the Blue Lagoon was originally yeah. offered the role of Wren, but uh, was unfortunately going through some addiction problems and uh, had the role rescinded. Uh, one of the actresses that was up for the role of Ariel was Madonna. Yeah, I saw that. I could see Christopher Atkins, Madonna. I don't know so much. I don't know. Yeah, maybe back then. Because she still wasn't like super huge yet. The one I yeah, the one I could see, and you may be about to mention this, so I apologize if I'm stepping on your research. The one I could see would be Daryl Hannah, who was in the conversation uh, yeah. Yeah, to play Ariel. Only because Lori Singer, as according to the when you just Google Laurie Singer's tall girl, she's 5'10". Mm-hmm. Daryl Hannah's tall. I just could see like like a swap there. Yeah. But yeah, you, you know, you try to envision it. It was Madonna. And, I'm sorry. Who else was, who was the other? Christopher Atkins. Oh, okay. I thought there was another one. Uh, no, I, uh, it was Madonna. Oh, I, was... I figured Madonna was the biggest name. Yeah, no, I hear you. So. Because then you never, you never know. Yeah. And I, I, I for another, uh, I believe, uh, possible casting choice for the role of Ariel uh, was Sylvester Stallone. Yes, I, I believe so too. Yeah, yeah. Just kidding. But in all seriousness, other uh, says uh, potential or uh, casting possibilities for the role of Ren were Tom Cruise and Rob Lowe. Yeah, I saw that. Because of, you know, Tom Cruise had the famous underwear dance sequence in Risky Business. But he was filming all the right moves at this time. And then Rob Lowe had auditioned, but uh, he ended up having like a knee injury or something, which prevented him from taking part. So there's some other trivia. But uh, Kevin Bacon was offered the role eventually. But initially, he was offered the leading role for Stephen King's movie, Christine. Because this is 1983, the year before Footloose was released. So he's offered the lead role for Christine, but then he was asked to do a screen test for Footloose. And so the producers of Footloose had to convince him that turning down a sure role in Christine in, in favor of auditioning for Footloose uh, was the wiser choice somehow. Uh, because if he got the role for Footloose, it would make him a bigger star than taking the role on Christine. Right. But how could they guarantee that, of course, is the question. Yeah. You know, they don't, you can't tell the future. But as it turns out, uh, I get this according to the research here. It said 30 seconds into the screen test, Bacon was offered the part for Footloose. But then he had to fight for it because, you know, how I was talking about earlier, how Bacon does have kind of a unique look. I mean, he's a good looking mm-hmm. guy. There's no question about it, but he still has a, an edge to him. 
not yeah. your classically handsome, maybe. Yeah, I agree with that. Great, better way to frame it. And in this case, I guess there were, the producer, you know, Sherry Lansing, had said he wasn't sexy enough to headline as a youth-oriented, headline a youth-oriented movie like this. So it took the director, Herbert Ross, weeks of pleading with her that he was sexy. <laughs> and it took <laughs> various screen tests to change her mind, but it did work. And as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. Um, yeah. The one thing I always love is finding out the actresses or actors ages on these high school films. Yeah, that's what I have. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Go yeah. For it. yeah go so, for it. Yeah. so the funniest thing is to so my, Hey, it's that actor, you know, Francis Lee McCain, who was Ren's mother in the film. Uh, but in real life, she was only 14 years older than Kevin Bacon. So Kevin Bacon was around 24 at the time. Um, we go over to John Lithgow and Laurie Singer. Uh, Laurie Singer was a year older than Kevin Bacon and only 12 years younger than John Lithgow. Yeah, and only nine years younger than Diane Wiest. Yeah, it's crazy, too, because when you look at John Lithgow, he does not look like he's in his mid-30s. No. He looks like my age right now. Yeah. And I also think that Laurie Singer looks older than, I mean, she looks a little more mature. Than oh, yeah. Excuse me, a senior in high school. Yes. Oh, yeah, they all do. Yes, they they do, even Kevin Bacon. And speaking of KB, Bacon played an Omega Theta uh, Pi fraternity pledge for the fictional Faber College in National Lampoon's Animal House six years prior to playing a high school student. (laughs) Yes, yeah. That's awesome. He was playing a college fraternity pledge six years before he plays a high school student. Brilliant. That's all I got for fun facts and trivia. All right, so let's move on to box office. So Footloose was released on February 17th, 1984 on an estimated budget of $8 million. It grossed $80 million. Uh, This movie was a big hit. It debuted at number one at the box office and held that top spot for three consecutive weeks and then stayed in the top 10 for the next nine weeks. It was the sixth highest grossing movie of 1984 and the eighth highest grossing movie released in 1984 uh, because Beverly Hills Cop in terms of endearment were released near the end of 84. But if you take their full box office, that knocked down Footloose to number eight. Uh, Moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we loved catching sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of Footloose was split. Even though neither found the story believable, Gene liked the high-energy music and dance numbers. He thought both Kevin Bacon and Chris Penn put in good performances, and Kevin Bacon made the Ken McCormick character appealing. Roger found it to be a boring morality tale, with the dance scenes being too few and too far between. All right. Yeah, so it takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Footloose? So... Additional thoughts, Bill Bant. Going back to the reviews for a moment, I had seen this was crazy. The on the tomato meter from Rotten Tomatoes, this film only has fifty-two percent according to critics. I thought that was a little low. Yeah, uh, but a seventy-one percent audience score versus the remake from twenty eleven, which had a higher rating on the tomato meter at sixty-eight percent. It has a lower audience score of sixty-one percent. Kind of the reverse. But uh, I forgot to mention, Miles Teller 
is in the Footloose remake. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, my only other real additional thought, I've got some other, I got plenty of uh, deep questions, but yeah, I mentioned it earlier, Utah County, Utah is beautiful, man. Great backdrop for and setting for this movie. I kept just looking at the mountains and the countryside. I'm like, this is, this is a nice area. Right? I shot this. Did you have some additional thoughts before we get to questions? Oh, God. How close did this movie be- come to uh, being R-rated in that shower scene? I was like, hello oh, sure. there. Yeah. I mean, hey, we saw butt cheeks. But then there's that one guy <laughs> who was who almost like an inch away from doing full frontal in the background. Hey, yeah. Whoa. I was like, okay, it's nice that they finally do, you know, let's show the men's locker for once. Instead yeah, of we were about locker. to get the full Monty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think like, there was some research Bacon was talking about. Those guys got paid 20 bucks extra to do. Show some tushy. Yeah. Good for them. You know, I found this interesting, too, because I was trying to figure out the town itself. They open in that one scene where it starts in the church and you see the congregation in there and the church is full. But the church is not very big. But we know that the reverend has like a huge hand and say over what goes on in there. So, you know, with church, you know, you do do multiple masses during the day, mostly. Uh, but I don't know with this church, if, if he's the only reverend, and is he doing it three times a day? Because then that shows him out talking to the people and all that kind of stuff. So I'm thinking this town's going to be really small. But then when you get to the school, damn, this is like your typical size high school. So there's a lot of kids. Right. So I was always kind of confused by like the size and scope of the town itself. So I got you. So it's like, how much influence does he really have? It's like, is that really the only religion that probably, because of course, you know, again, very white town. Right. Yeah. And they don't say actually in the movie, they make reference to other like bordering states. I mean, they talk about like, I don't know, Alabama, Nebraska or some Willard mentions it early in the film about other states imposing laws against dance and things like that. Mm -hmm. But you don't know where Beaumont is exactly. We know it's shot in Utah, according to the research, but in the movie, they don't say Utah. Yeah. So I was always kind of interested in the scale of the town. Like how much does it incorporate? Not that I need to know that kind of stuff, but it just seemed interesting to me because when you, when you see the beginning shot and you're kind of like, Oh, it's a really kind of a small church. So you're thinking it's a small, small, small town where it's like right. you, know, you have your typical main street, the whole town shuts down for Friday night football, that kind of feel. Yeah. You it. might but have a yeah. few thousand people or something like that. In yeah. The town. Definitely a school does not have gymnastics. <laughs> Too small. And are they competing against other schools that have gymnastics teams then in the air? Like, you would think so. Well, yeah. Like a lot of other small country towns with gymnastic teams. Yeah. Um, so that was just a thought. I was just always curious. No, yeah, you're just trying to get an idea of the scope. And yeah, I, I completely understand. You know what? Maybe this should have been a complaint. But Chuck, man, why don't you throw a rubber raft in the back of your car when uh, you're going to make sweet, sweet love to uh, Ariel? <laughs> we, we know the rubber raft thing works. Right. We've seen it before. The <laughs> little... The old blanket in the field. Come on, man. Throw back to killer clowns from outer yep. space. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Right. Got to have the rubber raft handy yeah. for the bed of the truck. All right. Yeah, that's, that's all I got for final thoughts. That's good stuff, man. Uh, hey, man, have you ever known anyone named Ren? No, I thought about that, too. I don't know any Rens. I know one guy, and he works at a wing stop in Laverne. Shout oh, out dude. to Ren. He's great, dude. Uh, works hard for the money. Working hard, slinging those hot wings. I thought about this, too. Like, poor Ariel became the second 
most famous era of the eighties after the little mermaid. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought about that too. And yeah, it's funny. This guy ran, I don't know him personally. I just know I'm always familiar with him because I go in there a lot to deliver, et cetera. And uh-huh. He will sh- make a call back to this movie, like he's yeah, like my name's Ren, like but you you know you're too young to remember this. Movie. I'm like no, I I, I know that movie. <laughs> Did you watch the Ren and Stimpy show? A little bit. I wasn't that gaga about it like most people were. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Brian Sears got me into that. Shout out oh, to Brian okay. Sears. All right, Bill. When's the last time you put your dancing shoes on? Ooh man, it's been a while. Um... It's probably been at a wedding, to be honest. Sure. And because of COVID and all that, I haven't been to a wedding in a while. So it's, yeah, it's been a couple of years. I thought you were going to say since because of the pandemic, I mean, you haven't been to a club in a while. No. Because I, I just, I know you pretty well at this point. I just wouldn't see you going clubbing, but you never know. I thought maybe I'd discover something about you. Hillary likes to dance. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was, I mean, Zumba was her thing, right? Yeah. Bit there, but that was. Yeah. Which when we first came out here, she was trying to get like fitness clubs and all to become a zoom instructor and half of them had no idea what she was talking about. So it was kind of funny. Right. And now everybody does it out here. You know, this is just a suggestion. I'm just putting it out there. You know, I was going to ask you when the, when's the last time you danced with Hillary, which probably would have been at a wedding. Yeah. uh, But um, if it has been a long time, maybe you should just put on the grace Two soundtrack and dance with her. That's just a cool rider. Maybe. I guess if, if like this hasn't happened, cool. Yeah. Uh, but it feels like I've made like this under the table, like agreement with Hillary to at least mention Greece two once in each podcast from here. And I know like, how much is like subliminal, like putting the thought in your head that we have to do Greece two. Have you ever read Slaughterhouse five or any novel that was thought to be controversial? I have not read Slaughterhouse five. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I kind of felt like, Ooh, should I have read that by now? No, I can't really think of anything. I mean, yeah, no. I haven't. Yeah. Like I read I said, well, in high school, school so. like I read some, I think I read For Whom the Bell Tolls, mm-hmm. Moby Dick. Okay. Or no, it wasn't Moby Dick. It was the other Herman Melville one. Billy Budd, Sailor. That's a bit of a snooze fest. I mean, that just my really, really humble and lame opinion. But yeah, nothing that was like, that was about to be burned. so here's a joke question i was going to ask you uh, you know you went to a catholic high school did they ban dancing no they did not no because i remember uh there used to be this is saint timothy's used to do a dance every the first friday of every month and uh i'd go with a couple of friends and yeah wallflower most of the time so though you were exposed to dancing at least that's because i was going to ask you did you not learn about dancing until the university of miami no no, I knew before that. Clubbing on South Beach with Marwan. <laughs> well, I'm like, you have to pull me or drag me kicking and screaming. Because I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I don't want to go to the clubs and shake my booty. Here we go. We're going to get into it. Okay. First off, favorite 80s Kevin Bacon film. I'm going to throw these out. Friday the 13th. Diner. Footloose. Quicksilver. She's having a baby or the big picture. These were not all of his 80s films, of course, but probably most popular highlights. Okay, so I would say Quicksilver I saw the most, which I kind of mentioned in the beginning, but probably his best one is Diner. I like it. Uh, It's always fun 
point him out in Friday the 13th, but doesn't have a major role in it. No. I would go probably, man, I am partial to Quicksilver. That was, like you said, that was on repeat on cable. Oh, I it was on a lot. That's about 30 times. Yeah, and it was fun. Yes. I also am partial to She's Having a Baby. I have to admit. That one never really did anything for me. Yeah, I like it. I liked it. So I go Quicksilver, Footloose, She's Having a Baby, probably. I haven't seen Diner enough, I am ashamed to say. Okay. I know it's good, and we're going to do it on this I mean, podcast. Technically, technically we later, should be so. saying the big picture because it deals with movie making but right yeah you would think yeah no so go for it man no i always thought that was 92 so i'd never um okay oh yeah it was right on the cusp there yeah so of course this is our first this is our first kevin bacon movie right i yeah yeah so i mean we have to talk about the six degrees of kevin bacon that's right yep the game that everybody knows or maybe used to know and play all the time um so so i guess there was a interview at some point where kevin bacon had said he had almost practically worked with everyone in hollywood and they made a game after this so it's a game where you arbitrarily choose an actor and then try to connect them to another actor and another actor and then eventually you would get to kevin bacon so you should be able to take any actor that's ever worked in hollywood and within six films they somehow worked with kevin bacon and um it became a board game. It was all over the place. At one point, Kevin Bacon didn't even like the game because he thought it was an insult. And then he's learned to love the game. But yeah, it's called uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, or people call it Bacon's Law. So I guess there's almost like a it's like a rating system or something where Kevin Bacon is like B0. And if you've started a movie with Kevin Bacon, you're like B1. And right. then you would go out. you would go out from there. But yeah, so Kevin Bacon is now the the center of the film universe. So it's always great every time it comes out the new movie because then it just expands the choices. Oh, and it's always it's fun to play. Yes, it is. You just throw it out there. It's just past the time. And also in 2007, Bacon started a charitable organization called SixDegrees.org. And just in 2020, Bacon started a podcast called The Last Degree of Kevin Bacon. Oh, okay. According to Wikipedia. Should we play? To just one one quick round. All right, dude. Yeah, go ahead. We can help each other because my brain isn't working. I know because I'm always like, oh, uh, so we got to we got to name somebody. Name a celebrity. Let's do Eddie Murphy. Okay, so Eddie Murphy was in. Damn it! I'm trying to think, <laughs> like I'm trying to think ahead. See, I can't. I'm I'm failing. It's it's it's, it's usually a lot easier. Everybody's listening to the pod, like screaming at you. Yeah, like, oh, like, totally. Jason, come on. I'm just not thinking. Yeah, because it's like there's too many Kevin Bacon movies. Thinking of all, I should be working backwards, like who is in all of his movies. Yeah, I don't know. Help me out here. We've packed our brains with so many people. You would think it'd be easier, but it's somehow making it harder. Okay, I got it. So Eddie Murphy was in Bowfinger with Steve Martin and Steve Martin was in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which had a cameo appearance from Kevin Bacon. There you go. So that would be B2? Yeah, two degrees. Cool. Pretty much if you can think of any actor or actress, you can somehow tie them to Kevin Bacon within six steps. And you can go back as far as, yeah, almost silent film. You can almost get someone to 
Get to Kevin Bacon within six steps. I was just going to say Kevin Costner, but he's in JFK with Kevin Bacon. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So it's one degree. Okay. Yeah. It's one degree. All right. Uh, yeah. You got anything else for this or any questions left? Uh, nope. All right. So uh, let's go. Recommendations. Recommendations of Footloose. What do we think? Uh, I absolutely recommend it. It's still fun. A lot of it still holds up. I think the only uh, scene that's a little rough is that actual duke it out fight scene between Ariel and Chuck. (laughs) Uh, Otherwise, it has great positive energy about it. It really captures that teenage kind of primal urge to shake it up a bit and go crazy and dance uh, the night away. It's a, you know, dancing is a great outlet for a lot of different reasons that Ren actually lists in the movie at the town council movie, you know, to rejoice, to celebrate, uh, to exercise. Some of the dancing in this film is definitely outdated, but the, like I said, the energy is still infectious. It makes you smile and that's worth something, you know, overall the film does send a good message. Dancing is human. Don't fight it. Um, Unless of course you're, dance fighting in a montage i would agree with uh roger ebert's assessment i I wish there was another dance scene or two you know there's definitely a lot of the soundtrack there's definitely never a lull in the in the music but yeah i would i would recommend it too um if you haven't seen a while go back check it out um i think you'll be a little bit surprised by it too um just like jason and i were especially with john lithgow's performance in it being not as bad as the bad guys we initially thought back then in the 80s. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely uh, give it a recommendation. Well said. And with that, I think it wraps it up for uh, this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be discussing the 1987 sci-fi thriller, The Hidden, starring Kyle MacLachlan, Claudia Christian, and Michael Nori. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at all80smoviespodcast, or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs> <laughs>